Welcome to GovInnovator. I'm Andy Feldman. Our topic today is an update on the use of impact bonds to address social challenges globally. Our guest is Emily Gustafson-Wright from the Brookings Institution. Here's a clip. As of today, there have been 89 impact bonds contracted. So they've really grown in use over the last year. I think about a, a year ago, there were about 60, so 20 in the last year, which is pretty impressive. The majority of those are in the UK, um, where the instrument was first used. So there are 36 contracted there. The US follows with 16, and the Netherlands being a small country, but they have eight, and then Australia with five. It's been estimated that impact bonds have leveraged over $200 million in upfront private capital for social services worldwide over the last six years, an amount that's expected to triple by 2020. To get an overview of what impact bonds are and how they're being used around the world, we're joined by a leading expert, Emily Gustafson-Wright, who's a fellow at the Center for Universal Education at the Brookings Institution. Emily, welcome. Thanks, Andy. It's great to be with you on your podcast. One challenge of this topic for people who are new to this is simply terminology. There are social impact bonds, but in the U.S. they're often called pay-for-success projects. There are also development impact bonds that, as the name suggests, occur in developing countries. Tell us the common thread that links these approaches and how development impact bonds are different. Sure. So in impact bonds have investors that are putting up uh, money up front to pay for social services. And then you have outcome funders that are repaying those investors their principal plus some interest if some outcomes are achieved. The difference between a social impact bond and development impact bond is that in the case of a social impact bond, that outcome funder is government. And in development impact bond, that outcome funder is a third party, like a donor agency, for example, USAID or the World Bank, or maybe a foundation. Generally, development impact bonds have been applied and are used in a developing country context since the idea was that perhaps governments may not be willing and able to act as outcome funders in impact bonds. Got it. It might help to give a quick example. We've highlighted New York City's social impact bond for reducing recidivism on Rikers Island on this podcast. In that example, the city agreed to pay back investors with interest if certain recidivism targets were met. In development impact bonds, in contrast, like you said, you might have a foundation or a development agency that's paying back investors with interest if certain targets are met. So Emily, give us a sense of today, the scope of impact bonds around the world. Sure. So we're seven years into the use of impact bonds globally. The first one was used in the UK in 2010. And as of today, there have been 89 impact bonds contracted. So they've really grown in use over the last year. I think about a, a year ago, there were about 60, so 20 in the last year, which is pretty impressive. The majority of those are in the UK, um, where the instrument was first used. So there are 36 contracted there. The US follows with 16, and the Netherlands being a small country, but they have eight, and then Australia with five. Sectorally, they've been focused mainly in addressing unemployment, so including job training programs for youth, others for particularly mar marginalized populations like refugees. So 39 of the 89 are in the employment sector. And then social welfare follows with about 27 impact bonds for such issues as homelessness, reduction of placement and out-of-home care for children, for example. Um, and then the other sectors include health, education, 
criminal justice, agriculture, and environment. And I know you've been tracking all these projects around the globe. How do you describe the main motivations for their use? Sure. So motivation really, I think, differs uh, across the different actors. So you have the outcome funders, right? So those who are paying for for the outcomes, a government agency in in the case of a social impact bond. Um, you have the investors and you have the service providers. For the outcome funders, it's really about paying for success and then and investing in preventive measures that may lead to monetizable cost savings or cost avoidance down the road. Um, for investors, it's an opportunity to achieve both a financial and a social return. And then for service providers, um, it's an opportunity to receive the capital that they need to deliver services up front. It gives them flexibility to course adjust along the way to achieve the determined predetermined outcomes. And it allows them to build systems of monitoring and evaluation and build up some robust evidence about um, their program's impact. That's helpful. Emily, can you give us a sense of where the most impact bond activity is taking place in the developing world and a few examples? Sure. So there are three impact bonds that have been contracted uh, so far in the developing world. One of those is in Rajasthan, India, to support girls' education. The second one is in Peru for agricultural production. And the third in Colombia for tackling unemployment. Um, We're also keeping track of about 25 impact bonds that are in design stage in developing countries. Um, A number of those will be actually likely contracted in the next couple of months. Nearly half of those are in Africa. So there are 12 that are in design phase in Africa. There are six in Asia. The majority of these are in the health sector, which is really interesting to, to sort of see how that differs from the high income impact bond market. And then that's followed by um, the employment sector. Take a minute, Emily, if you would, to tell us about one of those projects so that we get a better sense of how it works. Sure. So one of the first development impact bonds in the world uh, is based in Rajasthan, India. So in India, about 3 million girls uh, ages 6 to 13 are out of school. An organization called Educate Girls is working to get girls into school and doing well in school. So in this development impact bond, or DIB, the UBS Optimist Foundation provided upfront capital to educate girls so that they could work on getting these girls into school and learning. So targeting 15,000 children, um, 9,000 of which are girls. And then the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, the outcome funder, has agreed to pay the UBS Optimist Foundation back their principal plus return if these agreed upon outcomes are achieved. So about two years in, they're doing really well, and uh, they've got one year to go, and it looks like the foundation will be getting their return, and uh, girls are in school and and learning. That's great to hear. You co-authored a report, Emily, that I recommend to our listeners. It's called The Potential and Limitations of Social Impact Bonds, Lessons from the First Five Years of Experience Worldwide. To give us a quick overview of that, can you start with the potential side of the equation? Tell us what you saw. Sure. So first of all, we see a shift to a focus on preventive programs. So the majority of the programs that are being funded through impact bonds are really preventive programs. Two, we see a shift from input-driven funding to funding based on outcomes. Three, we see that impact bonds are helping to build a culture of monitoring and evaluation. 
Four, we see that they're driving performance management. So these organizations are building their capacity to course adjust, to figure out what's working, what's not working, so that they're able to perform better. And then finally, we see that they're incentivizing collaboration. So collaboration across government, um, both horizontally and uh, vertically, and also between public and private sector, since that's really what this is, is a public-private partnership with the private investors and then the government outcome funders. You also took a realistic view of some of the limitations of impact bonds. I know it's a nascent strategy that's still developing, but tell us what you saw in terms of the most important limitations at this point. So we looked at all of the impact bonds and we we still see that they're pretty small. You know, so the kind of the median numbers we're talking about are that the beneficiary numbers are around 600 individuals. I mentioned earlier the 15,000 girls in India, but that's the largest. And so it goes everything from 22 teen mothers in a program in Canada to 15,000 children in India, but really the kind of the median number is around 600. Um, and then in terms of upfront capital commitment, the median size is around 2 million US dollars. So, you know, these programs are pretty small. On the other hand, they're focusing kind of on quite niche populations. So you can say within the, those niche populations, they're, they're reaching kind of relatively large number of individuals. The second, we don't really see that impact bonds are being used to to experiment, right? So they're not a way to necessarily figure out, you know, does something that's never been tested before work? What we sort of describe them as being kind of ideally set in what we call kind of the middle phase financing, where there's some evidence behind these programs, but maybe not sufficient of evidence for the government to fully want to or be willing to support them. I think that's a valuable point. There may be a sweet spot with impact bonds between, on the one hand, new innovations in social policy that are likely to be too risky for an investor to feel comfortable putting their money behind. On the other hand, there are well-tested programs and policies that we know work and where government is more likely to just fund directly. Absolutely. I mean, I think Investors aren't going to jump into something where they really have no idea whether they're not going to get a return. And, you know, it really depends on the risk profile of investors, but it's really not about kind of experimentation or, or innovation. And then finally, so impact bonds aren't easy, you know, to talk to anybody who's been involved in an impact bond and they are complicated, you know, lots of different players, different new way of doing business, contracts, legal issues, etc. So, you know, thus far, they've taken a long time to develop. I think that it's getting faster and there in the future, there will be some models to draw upon and um, and it will likely get easier. I'll post a link on the website to the report that I mentioned earlier by Emily and her colleagues. There's also a new report by the team on the challenges and opportunities of using impact bonds in Mexico, and that's available on the Brookings website. There's also a report coming out in September on early lessons from impact bonds in developing countries. For now, Emily, thanks for giving us a 101 about the use of impact bonds around the world. Thanks so much, Andy, for the opportunity.